word right there i'm telling you justice for all liberty i love america and i sure hope you do too we've got a lot to cover today it's friday and here in the beautiful klamath basin southern oregon we went through snowpocalypse that's for sure we've got a lot of snowpack which is good for the klamath basin come summertime So a lot of people don't like this on the ground. They get scared driving in it. But by golly, we sure need it. The more snow you get during this time of the year, the better you are for your farmers in the summertime. All these ranchers that run their cattle, they'll love that there's some snowpack. We need some more. That's for sure. Believe me. I go through a lot of pain because of snow when that weather pattern changes. But by golly, we sure need it. And that's what makes life is water. And obviously, snow is water. Let's get into today. We have a lot we're going to use today to cover some historical things about Iran mainly. But I'll tell you, there's a lot going in, on in the world today, and we've got to be aware of what is going on and why it is going on. And the why means you've got to dig into history. You know, for a long time, I didn't like to dig into anything. But you know, The only way to advance yourself and the world is through education. And the more education we receive, the better. So education is a nation builder. Education is a self-improvement builder. And that is a beautiful thing, people. If you don't remember history, you're doomed to repeat it. So always take time and get involved. Understand your world a little bit better. It's not easy. It's an ugly place sometimes. But together, we can make it a better place. Not just for a few, but for all. 
And that's what America is about. We love freedom. We love the American light of hope. That's for sure. How many of us know about Abel Archer? Yes, Abel Archer. Let's learn just a little bit about Abel Archer. The world's most dangerous year. There's a gentleman on YouTube. He's called the History Guy. If you don't know about him, get over and check him out. Awesome guy. He brings a lot of knowledge to the table. And he presents a lot of information for us to consume. And that's what I am. I love history. So I consider myself a history student. Because the more history we consume the more we can recognize what's going on in our world today. Let's learn a little bit about Abel Archer. This is about 16 minutes. Bear with us. We've got quite a bit to cover today, and it's all about learning. And the more learning you can get, the better. Let's listen in. Geographic described the decade of the 1980s as a decadent, disastrous, and innovative time in American history. And it is somewhat difficult to explain to younger generations why we so enjoyed listening to Madonna on our Sony Walkmans. Perhaps emblematic of the decade was the year 1983, when Star Wars Return of the Jedi was the number one film, and many of we original Star Wars fans wished that they had stopped there. In 1983, no one could not sing along with Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart, and pretty much we still can't. In January, the Washington Redskins defeated the Miami Dolphins in Super Bowl 17, mercifully putting an end to the notorious strike season. And in October, the Baltimore Orioles defeated the Philadelphia Phillies four games to one in the World Series. And then in November, the world was nearly destroyed in nuclear Armageddon. Because while many of us did not realize it at the time, 1983 has been described by some historians as the single most dangerous year in human history. It's history that deserves to be remembered. During the 1970s, the Cold War saw a period of relative thaw called the era of detente. Detente was largely driven by the foreign policy of the Nixon administration and promoted by his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, and Soviet Premier Leonid Brezhnev. Detente was characterized by a number of summits, agreements, and treaties in an overall attempt to reduce the risk of confrontation between the two superpowers. Detente certainly never eliminated the conflict, and the two still engaged in proxy wars and espionage. There's some disagreement over when the era of detente ended. Some say when Nixon left office in 1974, but others see the 1974 Vladivostok summit between President Ford and Brezhnev as a continuation of detente. And the framework of that meeting resulted in the SALT, or Strategic Arms Limitation Talks II agreement, signed between Brezhnev and President Jimmy Carter in June of 1979. In any case, the period of detente was certainly over when, six months after the SALT II agreement, the Soviet Union intervened to support the communist government in Afghanistan, precipitating the Soviet-Afghan War. In protest over what he described as an invasion, President Jimmy Carter called for a boycott of the 1980 Summer Olympics to be held in Moscow. And detente became just a distant memory. The same month, the Solidarity Union was formed at the Lenin Shipyard in Gdansk, Poland, a movement that would challenge communist rule in Poland. The Soviets in the West perceived these two events very differently. The U.S. and NATO allies in Europe saw the two movements as freedom movements and a rebellion against what they saw as serial violations of human rights in the Soviet Union. 
The Soviets, on the other hand, as described by then head of the KGB, Yuri Andropov, to KGB members in March 1981, saw the defense of communist regimes in Poland and Afghanistan as the justified struggle of nations for their national and social liberation against attempts at exporting counter-revolution. What Andropov described as Soviet military support for a justified struggle against Western counter-revolution, Carter called an invasion by a powerful atheistic government to subjugate an independent Islamic people, arguing that one lesson learned by the world at great cost is that aggression, unopposed, becomes a contagious disease. The U.S. and the West funneled money to both the Mujahideen opposition in Afghanistan and the Solidarity Union in Poland. Cold War tensions grew more strained by changes in leadership. In May 1979, Margaret Thatcher became Prime Minister of the United Kingdom. She had come to power in part on a platform of opposition to the Soviet Union, arguing in a speech in January of that year that the Russians are bent on world dominance and they put guns before butter. She concluded they are a failure in human and economic terms. The following year, Ronald Reagan was elected President of the United States. Detente had deteriorated under Carter, but Reagan was more forceful in his opposition to the Soviets. In a famous speech in 1983, he referred to the Soviet Union as the evil empire and the focus of evil in the modern world. Both Thatcher and Reagan significantly increased defense spending, something that Yuri Andropov called imperialists waging an arms race on an unprecedented scale. And both East and West participated in that unprecedented arms race with weapons, both conventional and nuclear. In the Soviet Union, Leonid Brezhnev died in November 1982 and was succeeded by Andropov. Andropov was particularly distrustful of the West. Part of this was likely derived from his rise through the Soviet intelligence services, but historian Christopher Andrew notes the significance of Andropov's experience during the 1956 Hungarian uprising. Andropov was Soviet ambassador to Hungary at the time. He was said to be shocked at how quickly what seemed to be an all-powerful single-party state could collapse. Andropov was central to the Soviet decision to intervene militarily, playing a role that earned him the nickname the Butcher of Budapest. The experience, according to Andrew, left Andropov with what was called a Hungarian complex that had convinced them that military force was necessary to ensure the survival of the socialist revolution. This combination of leadership was dangerous, as Oleg Grudovsky, a KGB officer who defected to the West, noted, was a potentially lethal combination of Reaganite rhetoric and Soviet paranoia. One consequence was that Brezhnev and then Andropov became convinced that the United States was preparing for a nuclear war and was planning a first strike with the intent of decapitating Soviet leadership. The perception was enhanced by the fact that both Brezhnev and Andropov were old-fashioned Soviets, and they believed in Soviet dogma, including the belief that Western capitalism was on the brink of failure, and that Western nations would become more desperate and dangerous, as it did. Beyond Hungarian complex, in 1979, NATO decided to deploy U.S.-made Pershing II intermediate-range nuclear missiles into West Germany. While NATO saw the Pershing as a response to the Soviet RSD-10, NATO designation SS-20, intermediate-range missiles, the Soviets saw the Pershing II as a first-strike weapon. The Pershing II was deployed from a mobile launcher, making it quick to deploy and difficult to target, and was designed to destroy hard targets like Soviet missile sites. The Soviets were afraid that the Pershing II could be deployed so quickly that the attack would not be detected until the Soviet return strike capability was destroyed. The deployment of the Pershing II was characteristic of the nature of the conflict and mistrust of the era. Both sides offered arms limitation solutions to deal with the tension over the missile's deployment. 
NATO offered a so-called zero option, where they would not deploy the Pershing II if the Soviets would dismantle their SS-20s. The Soviets, hoping to influence peace movements in the West, countered by offering to cap missile launchers at 300, including the existing 250 British and French nuclear weapons. The NATO offer was not acceptable to Moscow because it essentially required the Soviet Union to dismantle weapons that were already deployed in exchange for NATO weapons that didn't yet exist. The Soviet offer was not acceptable to NATO because it left them no counter to the Soviet SS-20s. Neither side budged, but both blamed the other. This was characteristic. In their rhetoric, both sides claimed they were still committed to detente, but blamed the other for threatening peace. The Soviets were also concerned with Reagan's support for the Strategic Defense Initiative, or SDI. In a speech to the nation in March 1983, Reagan said, I call upon the scientific community who gave us nuclear weapons to turn their great talents to the cause of mankind and world peace, to give us the means of rendering these nuclear weapons impotent and obsolete. SDI was intended to develop a ballistic missile defense weapon using advanced weapons concepts such as lasers and particle beams. Reagan saw the proposal as a means to free the world from the dangers of nuclear weapons, but the Soviets saw it as a method to protect the U.S. from retaliation, allowing a first strike. In 1981, Andropov, then still head of the KGB, announced to KGB agents the creation of Operation Ryan, which was an acronym for the Soviet words for nuclear missile strike. Operation Ryan was a directive for the KGB to covertly collect information regarding contingency plans for a U.S. nuclear first strike. This perception created a dangerous situation. Under the Reagan administration, the U.S. military was regularly testing Soviet defenses. U.S. bomber aircraft would fly to the edge of Soviet airspace and turn around at the last minute to test Soviet radar and response times. In April, the Navy participated in an exercise called Fleet X-83. The exercise included three U.S. carrier groups operating off the coast of the Aleutian Islands in the largest fleet exercise in the Pacific since the Second World War. In addition to the normal goals of practicing actions with integrated forces, Fleet X-83 had the mission to intentionally provoke the Soviet Union into responding so that the U.S. forces could study their response and tactics. The Navy saw Fleet X-83 as a great success. They did not realize that the Soviets were on a hair trigger anticipating a U.S. first strike. What the U.S. was seeing as a normal Cold War operation and even deterrence the Soviets in Operation Ryan were perceiving as a prelude to war. In 1983, more tensions were thrown into the atmosphere of distrust. On September 1st, Korean Airlines Flight 007 was flying from Anchorage, Alaska to Seoul, South Korea. An error in the autopilot system caused the plane to fly over restricted Soviet airspace. Soviet fighter interceptors, apparently mistaking the plane for a U.S. spy plane, shot down the commercial aircraft with air-to-air missiles. 269 passengers and crew were killed. Realizing the significance of their mistake, the Soviet Union at first denied all knowledge of what happened to the plane. The U.S., sensing a propaganda advantage, released classified intelligence and communication intercepts to implicate the Soviets. Once they finally admitted the action, the Soviets argued the plane was on a spying mission. But the U.S. was able to leverage the incident to shore up wavering Allied support for the deployment of the Pershing II. On October 25th, an internal conflict in the tiny Caribbean nation of Grenada, an island of just 135 square miles, became the next flashpoint. The island government had been overthrown by Marxist revolutionaries in 1979, and the United States saw an invitation to intervene by the Organization of Eastern Caribbean States as an opportunity to claim the island from Marxist rule. The resulting U.S. invasion involved more than 7,000 U.S. troops, and the U.S. is able to defeat local and Cuban forces in just four days, returning the island to democratic elections the following year. 
Public approval for the invasion in the U.S. was high, but the act was decried by the United Nations General Assembly. U.S. analysts concluded that the island was of little consequence to the Soviet Union, but that analysis was optimistic, as later evidence suggests that the Soviets feared the Grenada invasion was practiced for a larger exercise. Of even more concern, Operation Ryan analysts noticed that there was a large spike in ciphered communications between London and Washington, D.C. following the invasion of Grenada, a sign that they took as evidence of an impending nuclear attack. In fact, Andrew Garland of the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, notes that what these communications were were complaints from Margaret Thatcher and Queen Elizabeth II, who were furious that the United States had invaded a Commonwealth nation without either informing or involving the United Kingdom. With the Soviets increasingly convinced that the U.S. and the U.K. were preparing a nuclear first strike, and with the U.S. unaware of the extent of the Soviet concern, NATO was planning in November to simulate NATO procedures during a nuclear war. Able Archer was the name for an annual NATO exercise replicating the outbreak of hostilities in Europe. It was a command post exercise designed to test procedures more than actually moving troops. Able Archer 83 had been intended to be more robust than in recent years, in keeping with Reagan's goal of making exercises as real as possible as a means of preparation. But National Security Advisor Robert McFarlane realized that the action could be provocative and had limited the scope of the exercise. Still, the exercise simulated things like ciphered communication and command procedures as a conflict escalated from conventional to nuclear. These were exactly the sorts of things that Project Ryan was intended to detect. The Soviets began to suspect that Abel Archer was a cover to facilitate an actual first strike, assuming that the spike in ciphered communication after the invasion of Grenada represented planning for the attack. The U.S. and NATO remained oblivious. Despite several deviations from previous Able Archer exercises, they did not perceive that the exercise could be perceived as a threat by the Soviets. Unaware of Project Ryan, the NATO exercise was mirroring exactly the scenario that the Soviets had assumed would lead to a preemptive nuclear strike. Convinced their only chance for survival was to strike before NATO could, the Soviet Union readied its nuclear arsenal for attack. While CIA intelligence noticed activity at Soviet air bases, the U.S. did not realize the extent of the Soviet response. That turns out to have been lucky, as U.S. commanders decided not to increase U.S. alert levels. Able Archer 83 ended on November 11th, with NATO apparently unaware that the exercise had brought the Soviets to the brink of nuclear attack. We still don't know exactly how serious the Russians took the threat or how close they came to launch. While intelligence assets at the time and documents that have been released since show us that the Soviets certainly took the activity far more seriously than we once realized, the general consensus is still that they didn't think an attack was imminent, that their finger was not really on the trigger. But some historians disagree, including Cold War historian and former CIA agent Dr. Peter Pry, who argues that had Abel Archer continued, even for as little as another 24 hours, that the West might have unwittingly stumbled into nuclear holocaust. To this day, we do not know how close the call was in the world's most dangerous year. But there are other historians that argue that this was the event that changed everything. Ronald Reagan was said to be very unnerved when he found out that the Soviets had taken the exercise seriously. It seems to be the first time that he realized that the Soviets so mistrusted us that they thought that we would do the unthinkable and start a nuclear war. He wrote in his memoirs, I became more anxious than ever to get a top Soviet leader alone in a room and try to convince him that we had no designs on the Soviet Union and Russians had nothing to fear from us.
Reagan started 1984 with a softer tone, saying in an address on January 16th, Neither we nor the Soviet Union can wish away the differences between our two societies and our philosophies. But we should always remember that we do have common interests, and foremost among them is to avoid war and reduce the level of arms. Andropov died the following February, and Konstantin Chernyenko spent a year as general secretary. He was ill throughout and turned out to be only a brief caretaker. In 1985, Mikhail Gorbachev became general secretary. In Gorbachev, Reagan and Thatcher found a man with whom Thatcher said, we can do business together. In 1988, Reagan and Gorbachev signed the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty, which, among other things, resulted in the decommissioning of both the Pershing II and the SS-20. By the end of the 1980s, the cassette-playing Walkman had largely been replaced by the CD-playing Discman, and Mr. Reagan had convinced Mr. Gorbachev to tear down the Berlin Wall. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down that wall. That was a beautiful day, my friends. I don't know if you were alive during that period, but I remember that period. And the day that Berlin Wall started to crumble, I'll tell you, many, many millions cried out of joy. There was families divided, and I remember watching with just amazement that, wow, after going through all of that Able Archer stuff and seeing this happen, it was just amazing. 1984, wow, what a year that was. It was the first year I was able to vote. I was 18 years old, spry, ready to hit the world. And my first vote went for Mr. Ronald Reagan. And he was in his second term at that time. And what Mr. Reagan and his crew was able to complete during his tenure as president was remarkable and a lot of people just don't take time to remember these things we live in a volatile world because there's always power pushes we've got to remember as people we the people hold control and power within ourselves and that's what matters that's why the United States was formed the way it was. We, the people. And that doesn't mean just here in the United States. That means around the world. Sure, we have differences. There's always difference. See, but you can always find common ground in difference. We've got to settle the hostilities down and come together and talk. Understand each other. That's the key. See, history will teach us a lot. During that time of Abel Archer, a lot of things happened. A lot of tense 
intense days. I remember being very nervous, thinking, oh my God, we're about to lose the world over nuclear war. Why should people have to feel that way? Why? Because of a few gallons of oil? Over some plastic goods? We're better than this. We all need and we all want. But we have to remember there's many of us. There's many of us. And we all matter. But remember, if you're going to be hostile, you're going to be, be met with hostilities. So it's more sensible to be diplomatic about things. The rule of law matters. Constitutional-based governments are a big deal. And that's why you're seeing the spread of constitutional governments throughout the world. We the people, we matter. So let's carry on here. U.S. service members injured in Iran bombing. Let's listen to this. We're now learning U.S. troops were injured when Iran launched those missiles on U.S. bases in Iraq. Martha Raddatz is in Washington with the very latest. Good morning to you, Martha. Good morning, Michael. From President Trump on down, the U.S. had said there were no injuries from that Iranian missile strike. Word coming this morning that, in fact, there were. This as Iran's supreme leader is calling the U.S. an arrogant power. Before tens of thousands of chanting Iranians, the country's supreme leader was defiant, claiming Iran's retaliatory missile strikes on the U.S.-backed military bases in Iraq dealt a blow to America's image as a global superpower. And this morning, we are... We're going to pause that for a moment, and we're going to listen to over here. We have that Iran's supreme leader speech, and she doesn't go into this far enough. The Iran's supreme leader says revenge missile attacks on U.S. shows the hand of God. And that matters because even though we don't recognize religion like we should, these people are very religious. It's it's pretty much ingrained in their society. We've got to remember that the Ayatollah is a religious leader and that matters. So let's listen into this and I'm going to try to translate as much and as quick as possible because this video is actually got subtitles on it so I'm going to copy and paste this into the chat and that way you can go and watch this yourself later let's listen into this 
That day when tens of millions of people in Iran and hundreds of thousands in Iraq and some other countries took to the streets in a show of respect for the blood of the Quds Force Commander. And created the largest funeral procession in the world. This is a day of God. What took place cannot be the work of any element other than the hand of God Almighty. That day also when the IGC missiles shattered the U.S. base, that day too shows the hand of God. A force, a nation, has the power, the spiritual power. To give such a slap to the bullying world power. This is indication of the hand of God. Therefore, that day should be considered a day of God. The American government's disgrace, the disgraceful American government, the disgrace of that government, they, the person who was the most outstanding and strongest leader in the fight against terrorism, martyr Soleimani, a martyr in the trust who was the strongest commander in the fight against terrorism for the, this region and that is how with his own mouth here the U.S. president said with his own mouth God pushes these people to open their mouths and admit themselves they admit that we were Terrorists. We committed a terror. What could be greater scandal than this? So that's what was actually said. Let's go ahead and finish listening in to the U.S. service member injured in Iraq. Learning that U.S. military were in fact injured in the attack. This after President Trump and military leaders initially claiming the attack caused no injuries and only minimal damage. I'm pleased to inform you the American people should be extremely grateful and happy. No Americans were harmed in last night's attack by the Iranian regime. We suffered no casualties. We now know 11 U.S. service members have been evacuated from Iraq to medical facilities in Germany and Kuwait because of worsening symptoms due to signs of traumatic brain injury and concussion. The military.
So there were some injuries because of concussion. You know, when a bomb goes off, it throws this wave out. And that wave, when it hits, it can be devastating. So these waves that hit the heads of these members well, they always go in for observation and they're checked out. So there were some injuries, but to the extent of how bad, well, we're not sure. Now, here we have about the Iran Iranian plane crash. The Khamani, uh, Ayatollah Khamani uh, defends the armed forces in this rare address. Let's listen to this. Leader has called for unity following protests over the accidental shooting down of a passenger plane. Leading Friday prayers in Tehran for the first time in eight years, Ayatollah Khalid Khamenei described the destruction of the Ukrainian airliner as tragic, and he offered his condolences to the families of the 176 people who died. Well, there were anti-American chants in the crowd. The Supreme Leader defended the country's armed forces, saying the Revolutionary Guard, the elite unit responsible for the disaster, maintained the security of the country. Well, with me is Kasra Naji from the BBC's Persian service. And Kasra, interesting there that the Supreme Leader is defending uh, the, the military, perhaps predictably, whilst expressing sympathy for what's happened, obviously. That was his aim today, basically to defend the regime at a time when he's coming under a lot of pressure, his rule, the government, the revolutionary guards, the people are calling for him to step down on the streets of uh, Iran. They're calling revolutionary guards murderers. So he was out there to defend that and, and, and urge unity and push for the same policies that he's been uh, um, following. He offered condolences to the families of those people who died at the plane crash, uh, but no apologies. Uh, so there you have it. Basically, you know, Iran right now is a very touchy place. And, you know, Iran has been that way for quite some time. If we don't remember the Shah and his reign before the 79 takeover, when the Shah actually fled Iran and came to the U.S., well, it's, it's interesting. You have to understand all of that in order to understand Iran and its people. The people are actually the ones driving all of this when they get upset. It's just like any other nation. You upset their people, they're going to look out for themselves. So let's take some time and learn about Iran and the Shah. And when they fled to America and the Shah died... 
A lot of people don't realize he left a son. And that son, within the last few years, have been kind of stepping up and speaking out again. So there's this uh, possibility that there's a shift going to occur again. And you never know. Is the Shah going to try to reemerge through his son and the practices and behaviors? I don't know. Let's learn about this. Confusion over Iran. This comes from the National Geographic, and I'll leave a link in the chat. In September 1978, America's close ally in the Muslim Middle East, Iran, is rocked by anti-government riots. The crowds, Islamists, communists, liberals, have come together in opposition to the dictator, the Shah of Iran. For almost four decades, America has relied on Reza Shah Pahlavi. O King of Kings, ruler of Iran and all its people. He lets Iran's vast oil wealth go only to the few. He promotes Western culture, enraging millions of Muslims. The Shah's power is maintained by a vicious secret police and the fifth largest military on earth, equipped with American weapons. Now, President Carter calls an emergency meeting. Our presumption was that the United States policies would be better off uh, if the Shah did stay in power. We were concerned that if Shah falls, the whole thing could become extremely unstable, not just in Iran, but in the region. But over how to save the Shah, the president's advisors are divided. Uh, Secretary Vance and I both felt that the best chance the Shah had to maintain his position was to go the direction of reform, to have early elections, to take human rights steps that would endure would gain the confidence of his people. You first reestablish order, thereby asserting your authority, and shortly thereafter initiate reforms, having proven that you're in charge. Brzezinski felt we should make it very clear to the Shah that we would not object in any way if he decided to really crack down very hard and use what Brzezinski came to call the, the iron fist. But the message to the Shah isn't clear. It urges him both to get tough with the protesters and to offer them concessions. The Shah summons the U.S. ambassador, William Sullivan. His Majesty asked him, does America want me to take a hard line? Ambassador Sullivan had to say, I have no instructions on this, Your Majesty, which left the, 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 the Shah very confused. <laughs> The Shah sees no choice but to try to embrace the revolutionaries. As the Shah of Iran and an Iranian, I cannot disapprove of my people's revolution. I promise to uphold the constitution and the people's will. I will not allow tyranny or corruption. 
و به دور از استبداد و ظلم و فساد خواهد بود. The Shah announces that he and his family will soon be taking an extended holiday. Soon after, the Shah and his wife leave Iran. I've been feeling exhausted and need some rest. And some rest he indeed received. The next one we want to listen to is I Knew the Shah. This is part two, and I will leave the link in the chat for you to go ahead and listen to or share out on your own because history is important and we all need to remember it. So share it, pass it on, understand who and what these people are and why we are here today. And remember, the Shah has a son, so there's always that possibility. You know how kingships and things go, like monarchs. They like the blood to come back in. So with the upset and the violence going on in Iran, is there a possibility that we could usher in the son of the Shah? Who knows? So let's listen into this and learn a little bit. With the Shah back on the throne, thanks to the CIA, the Iranian monarchy seemed secure. But for the Pahlavi dynasty to continue, the Shah needed a male heir. His second wife, Soraya, was unable to conceive. So in 1958, pressure from the royal court led him to tearfully announce his divorce. But the Shah would not be single for long. We were sitting and he started to talk to me by saying that he had two wives and unfortunately for different reasons it didn't work. And he asked me whether I would like to become his wife. And of course, immediately without hesitation, I said yes. 21 years old, she was a regal figure. Superb On December the 20th, 1959, at the age of 21, Farah Deba married the Shah. And this time, the relationship would last. With patience, she would listen to me because I am a personality. Maybe I got too overexcited about the subject, but he, he was patient to explain to me. And uh, really a very good relationship. Thousands in Tehran and throughout Persia rejoice. And finally, Farah would provide a son and heir for the Shah. The Shah began a modernization drive as a way of legitimizing his rule. According to some, the influence of Farah and his twin sister Ashraf was vital to forming the Shah's social policies. He was not a great uh, social thinker. Certainly he liked to be associated with progressive causes. Uh, he liked to see himself as a social emancipator. But the ideas were both those of Farah and also of Ashraf. The changes happened really in 1963, what we call the White Revolution. White Revolution because, fortunately, there was not bloodshed. Vast areas of the country were owned by a small elite. The White Revolution developed an ambitious plan to redistribute some of this land. Among other changes, the Shah introduced electoral reform. Before, three groups could not vote. The army people, 
those who were mentally had problems and women. So uh, changing of the electoral law so the women could vote and could get elected. These reforms challenged the power base of the clergy. In response, a conservative cleric, Rahala Khomeini, publicly denounced the Shah. The Shah retaliated by exiling him. While the religious right staunchly opposed the Shah's reforms, they proved popular with others. Certainly there were many in, in Iran who adored him and admired him, who thought that he was uh, a champion for, for progress, and particularly women who, who believed that. We, we shouldn't underestimate the extent to which women owe a great deal to his uh, championing of, of female emancipation in, in, in the country. But such emancipation didn't extend to others. The Shah kept tight control over the country with the help of his infamous security force, Savak. Savak was a brutal agency. According to human rights groups, during the Shah's 37-year reign, some 4,500 political opponents were imprisoned and around 1,000 were killed. Countless more were tortured. But the Shah denied any knowledge of such practices. When did people first tell you that uh, torture was going on in Iran? In matter of fact, we heard it mostly from the outside. In the inside, they would never come to me and say, well, sir, we have tortured this fellow to make him talk. No, that was not my business. That was not my job. Yeah, very little understanding of what was going on in, in Savak's jails. He thought that the complaints that he heard about of, of torture and of, of executions were much exaggerated. Uh, no, I think that the, the Shah was simply um, living his own illusions a lot of the time. But others claimed that the Shah took a close interest in Savak's activities. Dr. Abbas Milani was imprisoned by the regime, unhappy with his left-wing views. What was, for my case, fascinating was how deeply involved he was with security issues and Savak issues, because I learned very soon from the interrogators that he had been following my case. Although the machinery of authoritarian rule was in place, the Shah was not a typical autocrat. You got an impression of a man who was mild, polite, and in fact, a lot of people felt that uh, in terms of being a ruler of a country, he was not too strong and cruel, but too weak. The Shah was determined to appear a strong ruler. With the Iranian economy booming and development in full swing, in 1967, the Shah crowned himself King of Kings, Emperor of Iran. Farah was the first woman crowned in Iranian history. I was crowned as an empress, and I always said that when he, His Majesty crowned me, I felt like he's crowning all the women of Iran. His wife's coronation further outraged the conservative clerics. And by the 1970s, although Iran's economy remained buoyant, many Iranians still faced poverty and hardship. It was against this setting that the Shah threw a lavish party 
to celebrate 2,500 years of monarchy. The event has been reported to have cost over $100 million. Khomeini strongly attacked the Shah for its exorbitant cost and the rampant corruption surrounding the festivities. The celebrations which really made people very critical of the, um, of the monarchy and the regime. So I think, you know, the statements he had been making all these years suddenly began to resonate in Iran because the conditions in the country reflected more accurately what he had been saying all along. As opposition grew, the regime's repressiveness increased. The Shah became increasingly autocratic and increasingly uh, intolerant of any form of criticism or dissent. And I can tell you, you know, working as a journalist in Iran at that time, the pressure on the newspapers was much greater. In 1973, the Shah had been diagnosed with cancer. He was absorbed with the transition of power to his son and considered various liberal ideas. But in 1975, he set up an unpopular one-party system. Yet the Shah's defenders insist that he was committed to eventually broadening Iran's electoral base. He wanted the country generally to become a democracy. Sooner or later, you will have to address the kind of reforms that have to be brought in in terms of liberalization in a political sense of society. The Shah remained confident that his modernization policies would placate his political opponents. Capitalizing on record oil prices, he plowed funds into his development programs, ignoring the pleas of increasingly desperate Western politicians to lower oil prices. I think the Shah developed a great deal of independence on the issue of oil. We have letters from Nixon, Ford, besieging the Shah to bring down the price. The Shah stands his ground very firmly and says, this is my national interest, I'm not going to give up. But the world economy was to act against the Shah. In 1977, with oil prices plummeting, the Shah's ambitious development plans had to be cut back. There was a great deal of social dislocation, big economic schemes which were very ambitious, not all of which were working out very well. A large number of people felt really thrown off balance They descended onto the streets of Tehran, angered at the lack of political freedom and feeling the Shah was out of touch. For once, the Shah was powerless to stem the growing tide of opposition. My husband changed many government and many prime ministers, but they couldn't calm down the, the, the situation. By late 1978, Iran was in chaos. The Shah's credibility and authority were virtually non-existent. He knew the end was near, and he made plans for his family to leave the country. On the eve of his mother's departure, he organized a final dinner. Outside the palace, demonstrators were calling for the death of the Shah. Inside, the electricity was flickering on and off. It was a terrible, sad, moving moment. And then the, all the time during the dinner, the poor Shah was playing with her and without anybody's notice, because I know him so much, looking at his mother, 
thinking to himself. He didn't say a word to me. Is he going to see his mother anymore in these horrible days and these horrible nights? The Shah makes one of his last appearances in public. January the 16th, 1979, the curtain comes down on 2,500 years of monarchy in Iran, when the Shah and his wife flee the country. They left behind a nation in paralysis. The airport was cold and empty and everything was on strike. And I remember the officers, pilots, on the feet of my husband begging him not to leave. But he did leave. Within a fortnight, the Shah's nemesis, Ayatollah Khomeini, returned from exile, heralding a new era for Iran and the West. The Shah's ordeal did not end. He and his wife could not find a permanent refuge, so they headed for the US, where the Shah sought treatments for his worsening cancer. On his arrival, American diplomats in Tehran were taken hostage. So US authorities asked the Shah to leave, hoping to calm the situation. Finally, they arrived in Egypt with the Shah's health rapidly deteriorating. I will have ample time after the operation to speak with you gentlemen and ladies. On July the 27th, 1980, he died, surrounded by his family. I remember that the doctor who took his uh, ring and gave it to me, which I have till today. And there was a pack of Iran's soil and a prayer of Quran that she gave to me. In death, the Shah continues to divide opinion, just as he did in life. And that is so true. The division continues, people. And we have his son. He's been exiled for quite some time. And here in the last few years, he's been piping up about revolution in Iran. So I want you to be aware of this. And let's listen in to what he has to say. This is the son of the Shah that was exiled. As these last almost four decades have gone by, I think people had a chance to uh, get to know the real nature of this regime, um, are today fully aware of all the shortcomings in terms of where they are at, from political repression to economic hardship to the environmental destruction. And most importantly, I think a sense of being ostracized from the world community as opposed to be, uh, you know, participating in the world community. And I think the legacy of my father and my grandfather in terms of the architects of a modern Iran and where they were taking the country, which is the opposite of what this regime has practically done, is one of the reasons that there is a sense of nostalgia, but also a sense of comparison and say, well, you know, the track record speaks for itself. Unfortunately, because this regime is irreformable, 
in the sense that it does not allow for any kind of method within the system, within the body of the law, within the constitution to bring any legislation, to modify anything, it will be impossible to expect that reform can come from within. I say reform. I'm not saying change. I'm talking about reform. Change has to occur on the basis of a popular uprising in the form of civil disobedience, uh, uh, you know, the labor strikes, anything that will force the regime backwards to the point of collapse because this regime is not to voluntarily concede power. What I believe is that the content of the future regime has to be based on a secular democratic system where there's a clear separation of religion from government without which you cannot have a true uh, egalitarian democracy in the sense that any uh, other religion or ethnicity or groups will be um, discriminated against or what have you. Specific groups that belong to a particular... The proof is in the pudding. People do value that. This is a regime that tried to destroy our... Iranian hood, if I could put it this way. And Iranians do value their sense of national identity. And somehow it is tied with the history of that country and the monarchic establishment. Who, who is, who, where is this democracy? I've lived for most of my life in democratic countries in the West. So the values of liberty, the values of democracy, the values of human rights are embedded in the core of my value system. And I would like that for my country. Um, and I think a lot of my compatriots today, as a result of all the hardship that they have endured, realize that unless we are able to implement a system that guarantees citizens' rights, from their human rights to their political rights to their religious rights to their opinion, everything included, you cannot have a progressive, modern, free society. It's as simple as that. And I think Iranians have had throughout history uh, a tendency to look back more than to look forward. This generation proves me otherwise. I think this is a generation that recognizes where they have come from, why are they stuck in this, but where do they want to go? And that's the most important part. Where do they want to go? My only preoccupation is to liberate Iran. I'm not running for office. I don't expect or seek anything. If tomorrow my compatriots say, hey, listen, we need you to stick around a bit longer. We need you to help us X, Y, and Z. It is my duty to, uh, uh, to support my country the best way I can. But right now, as I speak to you, for me, the finish line is the day where finally Iranians can go to the election booth and vote the future destiny of their country by electing the people who will redraft the new constitution that will propose the final form that the government could have, the people will, on a referendum, decide it. And at the end of that process, we we'll finally will have, for the first time in our history, by the free will and free vote of our compatriots, the formation of a new, truly democratic system. If you want to, let's say, target the IRGC right now in terms of sanction, because they are, in fact, a major problem, but it should not come across as you are, we are condemning the entire membership of the RGC because, as I said, a lot of them are not there. In, the, in today's narrative, that is not clear. In today's narrative, we say we are putting sanctions on the RGC, it's blanket. 
It is important, therefore, to make the distinction between those who are still at the service of the regime and those who potentially can detach themselves from the regime to be part of that scenario of change. So there is hope for change in Iran. You never know what might come out of that. You know, each generation has to make a choice in every nation. And it's up to you to make that change, no matter what nation you are in. We live in trying times, that's for sure. In this world, it's not easy. It's not easy to get along because we have differences. But those differences, we can use them as building blocks. The more we insult each other and the more we try to not get along because of religious means or political means, that is bad for our world. Let's remember religion and politics are the two factors in this world that makes the world run. They're the driving force. And we have to get involved. We have to educate ourselves. That's why I'm digging in deep to try to understand history. A lot of this I forgot. I lived through this. And yet, a lot of it, I was just naive to. So I have to revisit history to understand history. And that's important for people to understand. It's up to you to educate yourself. If you're going to be prideful and boastful, you're not going to advance yourself. Sometimes we have to let go of ourselves to understand what's going on in the world around us. It's easy to get trampled on in this world. It's not easy to step up to this microphone and speak how you feel. Overcoming those fears, it can be heavy, but we all have a voice. And that matters, how we use it and how we choose to portray ourselves really matters. Free speech is wonderful. I'm closing out the show and At the end of this show, I like to turn the microphone over to you, the audience. If you come to castbox.fm each weekday morning at about 8 a.m. Pacific Standard Time, you'll find me gabbing right here about something. And then when I'm done, I like to turn my microphone off and listen to people. A lot of people have a hard time stepping up. But if you ever have the time, if you ever have the will, and you have the way, step up to the microphone, get your five minutes in. All you've got to do is there's a little telephone on your screen on the CastBox app or on the desktop, and you can push that, get on the show. We are opening that up. Before I shut up, I want to say you can find all of our media content at deadamerica.website. 
we have a few different podcasts that we do. We like to talk to interesting people and we try to do that as often as possible. But that's really hard in this world to get people opening up. But we did talk to a great guy, Andy Hoosier, and you can find him at HoosierReason.com. Excellent voice out there. He's got insight and he's reasonable. Add some reason to your day. Go over to HoosierReason.com and join Andy and his crew. Great place to be. Another thing, the world's really heavy and there's a lot of depression, a lot of suicide, especially in our youngsters. Another great person that I like to push out there is Tracy Maxfield because she does wonderful things. She's experienced how it feels to be depressed, how it feels to want to kill yourself. That's not easy to deal with. This lady has put it all on the line and she shares it. And she pulls you right in to what she's saying because she cares. Go over to TracyMaxfield.com and check her out. She just came out with a new course to help you out. It's a wonderful thing. Go over, check Tracy out, tracymaxfield.com. Now I'm going to shut up, turn my microphone off. If anybody wants to push the telephone button and get five minutes, I would love to listen to whatever you have to say. With that, I'm Ed Waters. You're listening right here on castbox.fm, a wonderful place to be, people. They offer you a place to live cast, associate with a live audience on a chat room. They offer you an RSS feed for your podcast, and you can share that out wherever you may be, and other people can find you. Also, you can add it to all the podcast directories. It's a wonderful thing, and it's free. For you to come over and start your First Amendment right of free speech. People should hear you. Get involved. Get educated. Nobody knows everything. But together, we can conquer a lot of troubles in this world. Unite. Educate yourself. And spread awareness. Don't take advantage, give advantage. It's about people helping people. I'm Ed Waters, keeping it real, right here on castbox.fm. I'll see you Monday. Enjoy your weekend. And like always, I'm thinking about you. Ed Waters out.